In this episode, we interviewed Tuniza Islam, Executive Director of South Dakota Voices for Peace, an organization that builds power and enables healing in immigrant, refugee, and Muslim communities by amplifying their voices and working in solidarity with all who dismantle bigotry and racism. So thanks everyone for tuning into this episode. Today we have Tuniza Islam, Executive Director of South Dakota Voices for Peace. Tuniza, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right. Per usual, we like to start with um, the elevator pitch. So um, give us the, the high level mission statement of South Dakota Voices for Peace. Sure. South Dakota Voices for Peace's mission is to build power and enable healing in immigrant, refugee and Muslim communities through lifting their voices and walking alongside all who are fighting bigotry in our state. All right. That's a mission statement for you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a few years ago, when, when you founded or when, when you became the executive director of the organization, what was the inspiration? Was there like a, um, a specific event that happened that, that kind of motivated you and, and fueled everyone? Yeah, so I am a co-founder of the organization. Um, our story really goes back to 2017 and probably a little bit before that. Personally, I used to do advocacy work similar to what I'm doing today when I used to live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where I went to law school. So I, I am an immigration lawyer as well. So doing immigration services. Um, but after the election cycle of 2016 and all our, of the horrific vitriol that we heard from a national level against immigrants, refugees, and Muslims and specifically, we had an inkling that that was going to rear its ugly head here locally as well. And so sure enough, it did. And unfortunately, we had um, elected officials in our state legislature who were proposing these very what we call hateful and bigoted bills. So my friends called me and said, hey, Tanisa, you know, this is what we're seeing. And there's no organization in South Dakota that you know, has the strategies or the capacity or the wherewithal, honestly, um, to fight this kind of stuff. I mean, we do have allies and there's a lot of work that we do in terms of building a diverse and inclusive and anti-racist state, um, but no one's specifically committed to this particular subset of our population, immigrants, refugees, and Muslims. So it's not like I could just say, well, good luck with that. Let me know, you know, how it goes. So I do what I know to do, which is to organize community. Um, I'm a Muslim by faith. So that's my religious community. I'm an immigration attorney. So th those are my clients. That's my community. So I organized folks and we drove six hour round trip to Pierre, South Dakota, where our capital is. Um, and we just were present. We were there and we voiced our concerns. We let legislators know that we actually exist in the state and we are an integral part of how the state has become what it has become today. And the great news is from 2017 to 2019, we defeated 85% of those bills. The sad part is that there were 14 bills during that time that specifically went to attack our communities. Um, but it really showed the power of people coming together and being very strategic. I mean, I always say to people, it's important to understand that these 
our strategic moves as well, right? These are not just one-off bills or one-off legislators who just have an ax to grind. Um, there are institutions behind propagating fear and misinformation, and we have to be well-equipped to be able to counter that bigotry. All right. Thank you for that background. I don't have a, a background in law myself, but could you share what some of those bills um, said that that were uh, bigoted and, and, and racist and, and had the, the verbiage that attacks the communities that you're defending? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if anyone's interested, they can go to our legislative website and listen to the audio recordings of the committee he hearings, which is, I will tell you is really difficult to hear. Um, but there was a bill, for example, that wanted to end refugee resettlement into South Dakota specifically. Um, there was a bill, there was a resolution which doesn't have the effect of law, but it really builds um, it builds a foundation to get to law, but there was a bill proposed to declare that Islam, the religion of Islam and Muslims were a terroristic religion and that we couldn't have people like me in the state because of those reasons. We had another bill which targeted undocumented communities and um, would deny access to higher education for undocumented students. Um, there was another bill that would have forced local police departments to work with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is ICE, which is the enforcement arm of the Department of Homeland Security, um, which is not a law in our state right now. They might decide to work together, but it, this bill particularly said that if law enforcement didn't work with ICE, they could be sued civilly. So, you know, it's been really interesting because each one of these bills brings together really different groups of people. And that's really what we were able to do. So for this bill I just mentioned, you know, I reached out to the sheriff's departments and the police departments and said, do you want to be sued if you don't work with someone by law? And they're like, absolutely not. And so even though their reason to be part of this coalition was probably a little different than ours. Um, it's really understanding how to develop those relationships and strategies. So similarly with that higher education bill, for example, we partnered with uh, the Board of Regents um, and, and so on and so on. All right, um, wow. So what do you think were some of the things that have happened over X amount of years that led to this um, being something that you needed to set up an organization for. I know you, you, you said a lot about misinformation, a lot about um, the previous candidate, the previous presidency. Um, what, what are some of the, the maybe top three or top five reasons why we've gotten to this point? <laughs> from your yeah, experience? no, that's a great question. I mean, so this, this really goes back to understanding that these are strategies also. Um, from the other side, you know, that's how I describe them. <laughs> um, you know, Islamophobia is not new. Bigotry is not new. Hate is not new. Othering is not new. Creating fear is not new. And um, what we know now is I, I think the 
the ad, not the advent, but the climax of Islamophobia that we see today, it was really, you know, because of 9-11 and the horrific acts of 9-11. But the impact that we we have seen, one of the impacts has been discrimination against immigrants, refugees and Muslims. We get you know, lumped together. So the Center for American Progress, which is a think tank in New York, the Haas Institute, another think tank, um, the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding. I mean, there's now there's like all these great reports and data about what is called the Islamophobic Network of North America, right? So there's millions and millions and millions of dollars that is pumped through this network. So, it, you know, the Center for American Progress does a great job delineating what this network looks like. So there's foundations involved that fund nonprofit organizations who propagate fear and hate. Um, the most notable such organization is called ACT. And they're still around and they were actually seated at tables during the Trump administration, um, giving expert advice on the threat of Islam and terrorism, if you will. So um, there's foundations, there's organizations, there's news media outlets and all of this network comes together. And they're, you know, I would say their goal is to just continue to spread hate and fear um, and make sure um, I mean, there was a movement in around 2012, I would say 2010, which was to ban Sharia law. And I'm doing air quotes, Sharia law from um, the United States. So these are this was a cookie cutter bill that was formed by ACT. And there's other organizations like ALEC, for example, um, that that put these bills together so that they pass constitutional muster. But basically it said that um, we can't have any Sharia law in our states because if we did, they'd take over, the Muslims would take over the constitution, which I think is kind of funny because if anyone knows how the constitution is amended, it's not, you know, that easy. And we're, Muslims are probably 2% of the population in North America. So um, this bill, however, had gotten a lot of traction and has passed, I believe, 18 states. And it, you know, it evolved in its language. So if your state has passed it, it might not even say Sharia law in it. It might say international law and our religious law in our courts, something like that. But um, in 2012, that bill did pass here in South Dakota and people weren't paying attention. I mean, let's be honest, you know, most of us are not engaged in state politics or local politics, but it has become really critical to understand that rural states like ours, South Dakota, um, are uh, grounds for where these really vitriolic cookie cutter bills are brought. They test them in these states because they know people are not engaged to see what kind of opposition there will be um, and how to, you know, they're figuring out how to tweak it so they can make sure they get passes in many states. Because yeah. when you have 20 states who've passed a bill, um, that builds a really strong foundation to argue that this is what the American people want, right? Yeah. From their perspective. So that's why we knew 
we had to do more than just show up to peer, you know, during legislative session that this this was really about educating our community, but also building power um, in our communities to be more civically engaged. And so this organic group of people who came together early 2017 now have created two organizations, actually. So we have South Dakota Voices for Peace, which is our nonprofit 501c3 arm. Um, and then we have South Dakota Voices for Justice, which is our nonprofit 501c4 arm. So we can do direct lobbying. Okay. Uh, educating the community is something you said. Um, what is Sharia law? And what is the perception, uh, whether it's true or not? Yeah, great question. So Sharia law to a practicing Muslim like myself is all of the things we're supposed to do and not do. Right. And, you know, it's difficult for people who um practice a different religion maybe they don't have as many rules they don't adhere to the rules you know this the concept of religion it's not the same for all of us right the basics are the same between the abrahamic faith i would say between christianity islam and judaism but in our religion for example there's rules on what hand to use to eat and what hand to use to clean and what side of the bed you should wake up on and you know all of these really particular rules. But what the fear mongers will have you believe is that Sharia law is about chopping people's hands off if they steal or stoning people to death if they commit adultery. And last time I had researched this, I think there's only five or six countries that actually practice the penal code of Sharia law. Like this was a whole system before, right? Like this is our in Islam, this is like our constitution and our laws that we follow. Um, and in most countries have evolved from this archaic system as most civilizations do evolve, right? And so as you can imagine in trying to get these bills passed, it, they just brought up all of these things to create more fear against Muslims. I mean, I was sitting in a committee room where they had flown in experts from Department of Homeland Security and former FBI agents, and they just started listing what I would say are Muslim sounding names like Muhammad's and the Ahmed's and the, you know, Islam's and just rail, just listing all these names and all the crimes that they have committed and you know, again, stoking this fear and saying that we have this propensity for violence and that's why we should be monitored more or whatever the goal was. Um, but this, you know, this is happening in our legislature. Like this isn't just happening at a church down the street. Maybe there's like 20 people who show up. This is like, you know, people who make the laws for our state are listening and deciding yeah. on things. Wow. Two final questions and then we'll get in, into the actual organization. But I think that yeah. the education piece is so important. Um, what's in it for the legislators that are fear mongering? Like why? Like what, what is the motivation? Is it all just politically based? Um, is, it, is, is it fear on their part that <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but what, what have you Yeah, seen that would about? be a great question for someone from that side to, to tell you. 
I mean, there's this very warped sense, I would say, just from my exposure to this world, right, in the last four years of what it means to be American um, and the perceived threats of if you're not for these particular people, right? If you're not Christian, if you're not white, if you're not a farmer, if you're not all of the very stereotypical things that people think of to be South Dakotan. And clearly we have um, a vibrant uh, indigenous population here that was here way before anyone else was. I mean, so really it is this, I would say in a nutshell, um, we saw it on a national level, right? And I think, you know, people who aren't paying attention to Islamophobia in our states were probably very shocked that the Muslim travel ban occurred, right? One of the first things that the Trump administration um, did through executive order. But for us who have been working in this space, it was not shocking. It was still, you know, horrifying, but it but the foundation had been laid for all of these things. So it's really important to understand. I mean, we call it legislated hate, right? That the power that our local officials have um, to propagate these things through law. Yeah. Wow. Now, the last question, and I think this will be a good transition into the actual organization, is we talked about the problem, what's secure? Uh, we've spoken a lot about education, empowerment, um, but yeah, let's get into what you think is, is gonna, gonna help get us back to, um, a country that doesn't have as like this bigotry, this racism, and, and I'm sure yeah, that will transition I mean, into the work you all are doing. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is it's, it will be a never ending ongoing thing, right? I don't, to have a goal to end bigotry, I think is not realistic. So we try to be very real, realistic in the work that we do. You know, I, for the last 20 years, I've been building community. I've been engaged in interfaith work. I've been engaged in DE&I, which is diversity, equity, inclusion work. And in 2017, I kind of had my moment of reckoning in terms of the time and how I was spending my time and skill set. And what I realized is we need to do a much more honest and um, pointed job about talking about hate and bigotry. We love talking about building bridges and building community. But when you have these actors of hate in our community, too, and we just ignore them, you know, that's not going to solve any problems either. So when we do education, we do exactly this. We talk about Islamophobia. What does anti-immigrant refugee bigotry look like? Why is it happening? Who is the Islamophobic network? In South Dakota, and we have identified those actors, you know, who are these hate groups? How else is it impacting us? Um, and then what we have done is created what we call cohorts for courage. So there's some really great people in our community, right? We're a really rural, really conservative, uh, politically conservative state. But a lot of us don't want bigotry here, right? But we feel alone. We don't know what to do. I mean, that's usually the, the answer that's given a lot. We're not sure what to do. Can you help us figure it out? So when there's 
one person in Winter, South Dakota, and like one person 100 miles away in Aberdeen, South Dakota, who want to figure out what to do, they feel like they can't because they're the only one in their community. So in hearing that, we've brought those folks together by sector. So we started with religious leaders, mostly Christian um, clergy and lay leaders, because that does have a great influence in our community. So training those who believe that we don't, you know, want bigotry in our states and our communities to understand Islamophobia, how it appears, how we can counter it, what are some of the facts, what is Sharia law, you know, what are some of the basic things we can educate people on? And then to show up, you know, when I I call it when I hit the red button, I just need everyone to drop what they're doing. Yep, and yep. Show up. <laughs> and so this this has been really um empowering but effective and people are feeling like they now have a support network to go to if something happens uh, and it's a very action-oriented program so we started with faith leaders um, we're going to start also go to educators and then also we had a youth cohort of um BIPOC kids, so Black, Indigenous, people of color. So we're continuing to explore where we can have most impact. I mean, we are a small nonprofit organization. So, you know, with our resources and capacity, really figuring out where we can have most impact. All right. Wow. Um, that's exciting. So uh, that's what you've kind of talked about the history, talked about what you're doing currently. What is your hope you know, one, three, five years from now with the organization. Um, and then we'll kind of get into the personal goals and, and, and announcements after that. Yeah, I mean, you know, our work is evolving and that's the exciting part of it all. Um, you know, no one predicted COVID and yeah. everyone pivoted, you know, the infamous word of the year <laughs> in that time. But we did too. I mean, so being an immigration lawyer, we... It's really near and dear to my heart to provide legal services to vulnerable immigrant communities. And as I was able to garner a lot of support for that idea, especially because in 2017, we saw these kids coming to our southern border, being separated from their families and all other horrendous things that happened. But it created a platform to be able to educate community on how those issues impact us here in South Dakota. So a subsidiary issue to that is that there's kids in our community from Central America who came to our border without parents or guardians. And they're they're categorized as unaccompanied minors from Central America. We have 600 of those kids who have been released to a sponsor here in South Dakota and no one talks about it. And um, 100 percent of these kids are in immigration court. Um, an immigration court for us is actually in Minneapolis, uh, so about four hours away from here in Sioux Falls. But so you can just see like the hurdles just to get these kids to court. Um, and there's no legal service for them. They have no access to an attorney to help them figure it out. And we know from statistics, 90% of these kids who show up to court without a lawyer are going to get removed or deported back to where they just fled from. So in November of 2019, after a year of intense fundraising and garnering support, we launched free legal services for these kids in our in our state. And then we also do um, work with our network against family violence. So we provide free immigration legal services to survivors of violence. And the majority of those clients are undocumented 
women who are survivors of domestic violence. So there's a lot of there's a lot of issues, right? So we're trying to figure out based on the skill set that we have and the passions that we all have, where can we make most impact? So we continue to evolve. And then with COVID, we really just noticed um, interestingly enough, our state has an English only law. It is law. So the way I understand that's been interpreted is that government agencies believe it's unlawful for them to translate material. And um, there are exceptions to the law, such as um, police, fire, the school districts are not included or they have an exception. But the everyday stuff that we need services from, from our city or county, our multilingual communities don't have access to. So this law was passed in the mid eighties. So again, knowing, knowing the environment here, we knew, I knew that our communities would not have access to information when, it, when COVID hit. And we were one of the first states where there was a huge outbreak in our meat processing plant, which is just down the street here in downtown Sioux Falls. Um, and 90% of those employees are multilingual immigrant refugee communities. So we got together, we had a rapid response team of translators. Um, we translated local information and that's the key. Like there was lots of national, you know, CDC, all the national organizations that were amazing and how quickly they could generate multilingual information. But, you know, we had nothing local. And so the school district you know, having good relationships with them. They knew we were doing this work and asked us to help them translate material to go to remote learning. So if you didn't know, South Dakota never shut down. We didn't have a statewide mass mandate. We barely had a mass mandate here locally in Sioux Falls, which is the largest city. But the first thing that happened, the only thing that happened was that school shut down. Um, and, you know, if we want to go back and remember that time. It was just really chaotic. And so we helped the school district. Again, at that time, we were a staff of two and a half in January of 2020. So we, we just know how these things will impact our communities. And we're kind of like half a step ahead, if you will, of what's going to happen. So then we developed an emergency relief fund for immigrants because those are the calls that we were getting. People were scared to go to work because they didn't know if they were going to sick, be sick. I mean, we didn't know, right? Like we didn't know if we were exposed, were we yeah. going to die or would we be okay? Like, should we go to work? So we raised $1.2 million um, in five months and we were able to distribute uh, 90% of that to 1,700 immigrant-led households in our state. And again, small nonprofit. Yeah. We just have strategic relationships. We brought people were like, yep, we got to do this because the federal government was excluding specifically from CARES relief um, and the PPP payroll protection plan undocumented yeah. communities. Mm -hmm. So, and then fast forward to this year, um, we were at, looking at multilingual resources for vaccine education and no one in our community was doing it. 
the Department of Health wasn't doing it. The city wasn't doing it. The county wasn't doing it. So we started it and they're doing it now. But we started this work back in March of this year, 2021. And we continue. I mean, we got an amazing grant from the CDC and also from Made to Save and some other grants. But again, just really being such a small nonprofit we're not an institution. You know, <laughs> we don't even have a name that's recognizable nationally. But for the work that we're doing and being recognized with the impact we're having and how strategic we have been um, has been really motivating, not only for us as staff, but I think for the community to see when you take a community-centered approach, like really take a community-centered approach, the type of impact you can have. Well, kudos and cheers, and the the work that you all are doing is really amazing. Thank you for for sharing that. Uh, So usually we like to end with um, kind of the the journey that we want our listeners to go on is one of awareness, education, and engagement. Um, So any uh, upcoming events, any shameless plugs that you want to get into? Any announcements or things you want to (laughs) mention? I mean, the... Our organization, we're doing amazing things. And with every nonprofit, my job turns into having to figure out how to raise money more than being able to like do the work that I love to do, (laughs) right? Um, And so with that, it's critical to understand how every dollar amount counts. It takes $200,000 a year to run our legal services program. Right now we have 50 people and 20 people deep on a wait list, right? We can't do more because we don't have more funding to hire more people. And so just to really understand that, honestly, if you're not sure what to do, but you have $5 to spare and you want to donate that to us because you know it's going to go towards these things, um, that would be really amazing. And, you know, our website is sdvfpeace.org. We're on social media, too. Um, And I think just letting people know that we exist, you know, and if there are similar issues that you're seeing in your community, there's probably a similar nonprofit organization doing that work, especially in bigger cities. But if you're not sure, you can always contact me and I can um, connect you to folks that I know in your area doing this work. But, you know, it is all hands on deck. I mean, I think when we just kind of go through life, you know, but we have these conversations about systemic racism and how to be more inclusive. I think it's really important to look at the small nonprofit organizations that are being led by people of color, which we call impacted communities and how they're doing their work. Because, you know, I don't have I don't have the name recognition like in ACLU, for example, right? A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to give to ACLU, but there's really grassroots organizations that maybe need more of that support because maybe those nationally named organizations are getting funding from other sources. So just to be more aware of that unfortunate nonprofit landscape of how we can't do the work unless we have the money to do it. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I want to end with uh, something that you mentioned before we started talking, a recent announcement that you made. I want to make sure we have time to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, for the last four years specifically, I've always just 
the trajectory of Voices for Peace has been so amazing. The community support. I mean, we started this organization um, with the assistance of another organization because we didn't think it would take you know, have so much traction in such a conservative rural place, but it has been amazing to see the community support and how, how quickly we've grown. We have 10 staff now. I've always felt like I was making such important, great impacts, you know, in this seat uh, as executive director. But after this last year and a half and seeing how our elected officials, I would say, mishandled the pandemic in our community, um, and how we really lost focus from the everyday people and how they're impacted by these things, essential services. Um, a group of my friends got together and said, hey, Tunisia, would you consider running for mayor of Sioux Falls? And it's nothing I ever considered before running for office, but it just felt right. And so I did announce my candidacy for mayor of Sioux Falls back in October. And so, I mean, the work is hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm running is because of the work that we're doing and hearing from everyday people how they're not getting the services that the city should be providing. Yeah. I think it's important too for the the highlighting of the work that you're doing in the community, the connection you have with the community, what you've actually accomplished so far in just a few years already. So uh, congratulations on the announcement and, and good luck with, with everything, of course. Thank you. Awesome. So we, we usually end and, and I, I keep this, I, I didn't tell you this, this is going to be a question at the end, but I'd like the curveball <laughs> sometimes. Um, sure. But is there anything you want to leave us with uh, before we wrap up? I think we're already past time, but I think this is a really yeah. important conversation and education that, <clears throat> that we had to go through. So anything you want to leave us with before we wrap up? Yeah, I would just leave us with the idea of we all have a place in fighting bigotry, you know, based on your comfort level or your knowledge about a situation, we can no longer be silent when we see incidents of racism, bigotry, and hate, whether that's just a mere being able to disrupt a situation or, you know, if you see a racist act occur in your community, really go to the targeted communities or the targeted person in that incident and make sure they're okay. Because oftentimes we think to attack the person who is perpetuating the bigotry and oftentimes we forget about the trauma it, it really um, has on impacted communities. So we all have a place um, in this fight and we can do it. Alrighty, thank you for leaving us with that. That's That's inspirational for sure. Teresa, thank you so much for your time again, and we'll be sure to share this and, and get the word out and um, share the amazing work that you all are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you know of a great organization or individual leaving a positive impact, we'd love to tell their story. Check us out and contact us at gtzp.org. Don't forget, for more stories like this, you could also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Instagram followers are link trees in the bio. And for podcast listeners, we are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.